Chapter 13 Finishing Touches George and the chief stood on the promontory and surveyed the ranch. It had taken the better part of fifteen years, but it was finally complete. George counted the twenty individual bunkers, and he mentally traced the paths of the underground tunnels. Then he looked at the various structures, all constructed with reinforced concrete slabs covered with false facades that mimic typical farming, housing, and storage and utility buildings. He felt a tremendous sense of pride and the satisfaction that comes from a long, hard-fought journey that has come to a successful end. He looked at Ernie and smiled, extending his hand. I think we're done, Ernie. Ernie shook George's hand. I hope we never need all of this, but if we do, I can't think of a better place to be. George looked at Ernie, no longer smiling. That's the thing I've been wrestling with over the years, George said, looking back over the property. Deep down, I felt like Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. Ernie wrinkled his brow and looked up at the sky, trying to remember the movie. If you build it, they will come? Ernie asked. Yeah, well, not exactly, but yeah. Replace the they with it? Yep. I feel like the act of preparing for the disaster went hand in hand with wanting or wishing for it, or somehow making it come to pass. Ernie looked back at George. I never looked at it that way. No? Not at all. No more than putting on your seatbelt means that you're wishing for an accident. George frowned and nodded his head. Ernie had a point. When you're right, you're right. No more needed to be said, and Ernie knew it. So they stood in silence. Each was feeling pride in their collective accomplishments, and both were silently wondering what would come next. Before they could finish their mental gymnastics, an answer of sorts came riding down from the top of the property in the form of a now-accomplished sniper. It was Izzy. She and Zena were completely covered in their camouflaged ghillie suits. They had been standing just at the edge of the tree line that bordered the promontory to the north. George and Ernie had looked right at them when they rode up from the bottom of the property, but neither had noticed. When Izzy trotted the 20 yards to where they were standing, they were both startled. Hi, Dad. Hi, Ernie, Izzy said as she pulled down her hood to reveal her ear-to-ear -ear grin. Ernie smiled at her. Nice job, Izzy, he said, laughing. <laughs> we must have looked right at you and didn't see you. George was still a bit shocked. Unlike Ernie, he was not at all used to being sneaked up on. That it was his beloved daughter was all the more disconcerting. I swear I'll never get used to that, he said. How long have you been stalking us? Izzy dismounted and hugged her father. I've been here all morning. You looked right at me like three times. I was sure you saw me. Ernie and George spoke in unison. Nope. This only made Izzy smile wider if that were even possible without ripping the corner of her lips. We were just admiring the ranch, George explained. I think we're done. Really? Izzy asked, the excitement bubbling from her. 
Yep, I think so, George said. Izzy hugged him again. That's awesome, Dad. I'm so proud of you. Now it was George's turn to smile. He turned to Ernie and patted him on the back. Couldn't have done it without Ernie. And you. And Jake. And Peter. George turned away so his daughter wouldn't see him getting emotional. Izzy started to say something, but she saw Ernie gesture to keep quiet. So the three of them stood there for a while, lost in their own thoughts, just soaking it all in. I wish Jake were here, George said after a while. Me too, Izzy said, squeezing her father's hand. I know he's proud too. George was still too emotional to respond verbally, but he gave Izzy's hand a good, long, and loving squeeze in acknowledgement. It was all that was necessary. It was about eight months before he determined that his theory would be proven or disproven. Either way, he knew that he would begin to sleep better, knowing that his children would be safe. Of course, he also knew that his preparations were not yet complete. Having completed the ranch's physical transformation was the most important consideration, but not the only one. As the physical preparations were nearing completion, his mind began to wander to the psychological and developmental components of survival. Not only for his own children, but for the unknown number of children that would seek and find refuge on the ranch. In addition to the physical security and sustenance, they would need toys, games, books, and educational materials. So his efforts expanded from the preparations that were necessary for mere survival to include more entertaining preparations. He had been so successful in obtaining surplus and closeout deals on the items necessary for survival that he was confident that he would be able to do the same for the other needs of the ranch and its planned inhabitants. He was happily surprised to find that he actually underestimated how easy and affordable these efforts would be. He had created the word technologicalification to describe the rapidly accelerating process of society's abandonedness of previous generations of manual, analog, and even basic physical solutions to even the most simple tasks and endeavors. As companies, institutions, and individuals divested themselves of these items, and with no viable market for their resale or repurposing, they became available for nominal amounts. As George went through the various offerings provided to him by having interns and assistants researching them at the university, he grew more and more troubled at what was being discarded. More to the point, he was dismayed at how little value was being placed on what he considered to be the basic building blocks of an entire society and culture. Books, musical instruments, art and craft supplies, board games, and basic electronics were all being discarded and forgotten almost completely. And with it, the knowledge about how to use them. While he understood all of the practical reasons for people to move on, his unique situation, knowing the end of the world was coming, made him sad that others had no idea. But rather than simply lament the state of the world, he began to collect these obsolete artifacts. He started with books. As technologicalification swept through the cities, states, municipalities, and institutions of higher learning, physical books were being abandoned and discarded at an alarming rate. Computers, the internet, 
Tablet computers and smartphones had rapidly reduced the need for physical books. So as cost-cutting measures, libraries of all shapes and sizes began downsizing their catalogs, offering various tomes for less than pennies on the dollar. The caveat was that the buyer had to arrange for the pickup and transportation of the books. It was almost as if the libraries were paying the buyers to dispose of the books, as it would have been more expensive for the libraries to pay for a waste management company to pick up, transport, and dump the books. So George bought them. Several complete libraries worth. He even took the shelves themselves in several instances, using them to line a fleet of 40-foot cargo containers to transport and keep the books, which would be ready to be displayed and used in a complex of new bunkers that he decided to build for the sole purpose of having an extensive library. The task was actually much simpler than he initially thought. He simply excavated a central bunkler and arranged the cargo containers like spokes emanating from the center. His next target was music. As more and more schools eliminated their music departments due to budgetary constraints, the instruments and related accessories were available by the container load. It was great for George. Everything from horns to woodwinds to stringed instruments, keyboards, and drums were available for the taking. He smiled when he thought of the children who would be able to spend innumerable hours playing with instruments, learning about, and enjoying music. If nothing else, it would keep them occupied. He decided that another complex of bunkers, similar in design but much smaller in scale, would house a music center. Again, it was a simple matter to excavate a central bunker and have the containers emanate like spokes. He even added a bandstand of sorts in a semicircular gallery suitable for concerts in the central bunker. While his kids didn't express any particular talent or interest in creating or enjoying music at this level, he smiled when he thought of the possibilities for other children. As the main parts of the ranch were growing nearer to completion, George found himself almost whimsically thinking about the less important and more entertaining features that he could add to the ranch. These flights of whimsy led him to buy almost all of the equipment of an old AM radio station that had been rendered completely obsolete by the FM and satellite radio and the internet. Most of the broadcasting equipment had been designed and built in the 1950s and 60s, and while there were updates and upgrades added through the years, the core technology still predated the transistor-based solid-state electronics era. In theory, George thought, this equipment might survive the electronic chaos that he believed was coming. Might be nice to have a working radio, he said to Ernie after he had purchased the equipment. Yes, George was happy at the prospect of happy at having a working radio station on the ranch but the equipment he purchased came with a bonus that made him giddy with excitement. With the equipment, the seller included their entire inventory of old-school vinyl records. During George's childhood in the 80s, vinyl, as these records were called, was already all but obsolete, but he remembered his parents' record player and the modest collection of classical music and jazz. In fact, he had fond memories of kissing his first girlfriend while lying in front of his record player, which was spinning an old, slightly warped copy of Stairway to Heaven. 
He had never given much thought or felt much nostalgia or sadness at the demise of vinyl records, but realizing that he had just bought slightly more than 10,000 records, mostly albums, filled him with joy he had not felt since Michelle had passed away. The titles themselves, while unimportant in the big scheme of things, was even better than he could have imagined. The station had specialized in classic rock and R&B, spinning hits of the 1960s and early 1970s almost exclusively. And while there were smatterings of other genres like jazz and classical, the lion's share of the titles, about 65%, was R&B. The balance was dominated by classic rock at about 25%, with jazz and classical rounding things out. What a find! George had a brief flirtation with the idea that the radio station could actually broadcast music to the new world, but then he thought that the idea was kind of silly. After the big change, music would be very low on the list of priorities for those that survived the trials and tribulations that George knew were inevitable. But at the same time, his new whimsical side clung to the idea. So he located the radio equipment in yet another new bunker complex high on the hill, where the 150-foot-tall transmission tower would have the most range. As he was preparing to oversee the construction of the small bunker complex for the station, another thought hit him. This would be a great place for an overwatch station from which to direct the defense forces. The position of the station provided almost complete visual coverage of the entire ranch, as well as the area just outside the ranch's main entrance. This realization led to another series of important thoughts and ideas regarding the potential defensive capabilities of the ranch. First and foremost, with just a little extra effort, a radio transceiver could be added to the radio station to allow two-way communication between the various bunkers and defensive positions throughout the ranch. It wouldn't be overly sophisticated, but nothing of much sophistication had much chance of surviving the crippling effects of the massive EMPs that would be blasted across the planet from the solar flares. AM radio signals would probably continue to work. That was the hope, anyway. These realizations led to several very savvy additions to the ranch. First, George purchased some very old but still functional walkie-talkies and radio sets from some old lots of surplus military equipment. The Vietnam War-era radios were bulky by any standard, but they were also very rugged, heavy-duty units and were very reliable. Even with his rudimentary understanding of military maneuvering and strategy, George understood the importance of effective communication in any military operation. He had already installed a very old and rudimentary hardwired telephone system throughout the ranch, but the effectiveness of such a system relied almost completely on various units being tethered to the hardwired positions. The radio option would allow for a high degree of flexibility throughout the ranch, independent of the phone system. With all of this in mind, it was very easy for him to picture Izzy in a camouflaged, fortified position near the station, directing her forces in response to whatever an intruding force could throw at them. George smiled as he constructed several battlements and reinforced positions around the radio station, connected to the now-reinforced bunker with small tunnels. 
With her skill as a marksman and her military mind, she could pick off key targets virtually anywhere on the ranch and could direct other snipers and other forces to where they needed to be through the bunkers and tunnel complexes with maximum efficiency and speed. Best of all, he thought, she would be safe. The last step, icing on the proverbial cake, was to construct two more tunnels using the prefabricated box culverts. The first led to the radio station from the nearby bunker complex. This was easy. The second was more challenging, as it led from the radio station, almost 400 yards underground, to a bunker that he positioned just over 100 yards outside the outer fence in the forest. While it wasn't legal for him to undertake such a construction project on public lands of the National Forest, he didn't care. In a worst-case scenario, there would be no park rangers or federal courts to hold him accountable for infringing on the forest. And even if there were such a consequences, he was more than willing to take the hit on behalf of his daughter's ultimate safety. And so it was that by the time he, Ernie, and Izzy stood on the promontory surveying the completed ranch, George was completely satisfied with the final product. The coming months would be occupied with the comparatively routine tasks of stockpiling provisions, testing and retesting the systems, and maintaining an accurate inventory of everything around the ranch. George was ready for the countdown to begin. <laughs>